Good morning, Fields. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Uh, you know, you really do have one of the most important jobs in the world. You have one of the most significant roles in this world, and we want you to know that you are loved and appreciated, and we certainly hope that you feel that this morning. So happy Mother's Day to you moms out there. Let's go ahead and pray as we begin. We're going to continue through our study of Genesis, which we began last week. Last week we looked at the first five days of creation, uh, and as we did, we focused on the character of God. This week we're going to be looking at day six and day seven, so let's go ahead and pray as we open up God's word. Lord, we come to you and we, we come with thankful hearts. Lord, we thank you for those precious people that you've placed in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you appoint the times and seasons of our lives, Lord. Thank you that you are sovereign, you are above all. Lord, everything is in your control, and Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. Thank you for your grace and your care, Lord, and we just ask that as we open up your word today, you administer to us, Lord, that you would shape our view of things, Lord, that they would, it would come into conformity with with your truth, and Lord, just ask that you'd work in our hearts by your spirit today. We give you full permission to do whatever work you want to accomplish in us today, and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So, today, as I said, we're going to be looking at the sixth and seventh day of creation, and in the sixth day of creation, we're going to be focusing on the pinnacle of God's good creation, which is the creation of man. And beyond that, he actually goes one step further, and the crown jewel of the creation is the, the final touch he puts on his work of art, and that is the creation of woman. And God, as a good storyteller, he draws the story out, and he, he makes it good. So today's Mother's Day. We have a text that has a lot to say about women. And about moms, because here we see that God put great care into creating Eve, the first mother, our first mother, the first woman. Uh, last week, our focus was really on the character of God that was evident in creation. If you weren't here, you can always get our teachings online on our website. And uh, we, we had a great time just looking at the character of God. Today, though, our focus is going to shift to us, human beings, and what is our place in God's creation. You know, uh, Genesis is the book of origins. And it is an important book because it not only tells us how things came to be the way that they are now, but it also tells us about what things were intended to be like. How God first created things, what it was like before sin came in and corrupted things and messed things up. And it, that's so important for us that we see this ideal. Because what that does for us is it gives us perspective. We're able to look at our world with, um, what's the word I'm looking for? With discernment. We're able to look at the world with discernment and say, hmm, well maybe this is the way things are and I understand how they came to be that way but I also understand that this is not the way they were intended to be. That there was a different intention, there was a greater intention that God originally had. So today we're going to look at mankind, the origin of mankind, the origin of work, and the origin of gender. And as we do all these things, remember this is before sin came into the world, before things cor were corrupted, the way they were originally intended to be. This is the ideal. And, uh, and the philosopher, Blaise Pascal, he was a believer himself. Uh, you probably heard his name. What he said was this. He said that there is something nostalgic and reminiscent in us as humans. 
something nostalgic and reminiscent in us, when we come to places like Genesis chapter 2 that longs and desires to get back to that place where we have come from. And he said that's why, that, that just reflects the truth that we come, we came from perfection and we were made for perfection. And that's why we have this lingering memory of it. He says we have this lingering memory of the perfection which we were created for. And therefore we long to return to that place where everything is as God intended. And that is the good news. That is why the gospel is such good news. That is the good news of the gospel, is that that is a reality. That that is something that is going to happen. That Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, he broke the curse of sin. And the time is coming for those who have been redeemed, for those who have received God's grace through faith, when all things will be made new. You remember, that's what Jesus says. In the, in the last book, right? In Revelation, he says, Behold, I make all things new. And we will experience that perfection which we are made for, which our souls long for, which we have that lingering reminiscence of. So let's take a look at days 6 and 7 of creation. And then in chapter 2, what happens is we zoom in on God's uh, creation of man and God gives us more details of how he went about creating the man and the woman. So we're going to continue in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It says this. This is the beginning of day uh, 6. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So God already created, remember last week, the birds and the fish. That was day five. Now he creates the land animals and he says that they are good. And I agree with him. I think animals are good. I like to go to the zoo. Maybe you do too. I think dogs are good. They're furry. They're nice to pet. Uh, Cows are good. They're made of steaks. And uh, pigs are good because they're made of bacon. And animals are good. We like them. We agree with God. This is a good creation. But interestingly, if you check out, if you got your Bible on you, just scroll down a few verses. Verse 29 and 30, what you see is that uh, at this point, humans were vegetarians and animals were herbivores. And uh, it's only in Genesis chapter 9, you can scroll over there if you're interested, after the flood, that people began eating animals. God said, all right, now go for it. And some of you guys are probably thinking, I'm really glad I was born after the flood because I like barbecue. And that's okay. I mean, I know some of you don't, but that's, that just means there's more for the rest of us. And, and what this means is that the picture we're getting is that from the beginning, the original way that things were was that man and, and animals and nature, right, it was all living together in harmony. No one was afraid of getting eaten, and there was harmony in nature. And that's interesting because the picture we get from the prophet Isaiah about what the world is going to be like in the messianic kingdom when Jesus rules over the earth as a king is the same picture of harmony in nature. Check this out in Isaiah chapter 11. This is the the one about the root of Jesse. If you remember the earlier verses, we often talk about these at Advent, at Christmas time. But then it goes on from verse 6 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 11. He says this about that time when Jesus will rule. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in any in, in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is that picture he's giving? Here's what it is. It's a restored Eden. This is what we see if you look at the end of Revelation. You see the new Jerusalem and you see the tree of life. This is a restored uh, Eden, the perfection, the way that God originally intended. And, and here's another part of that that we see is that we see animals and humans living in harmony. And this is the kind of world that Adam and Eve were born into. And, uh, and it just shows us, looking at this, how much sin has affected creation. How far we have come from this. We have to have bars up at the zoo because if we don't, they're gonna, all the animals are going to eat us, you know? And, and you go, uh, you can also take this uh, as a heads up that there's not going to be any steak or bacon in the New Jerusalem. So you might just want to keep that in mind, all right? Just eat them while you can. So verse uh, 26 through 31. Uh, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves over the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So here we go. Here's the crown of God's good creation. He creates man. Until now, he prepared the earth for man. He, he now creates man and gives him the earth as a gift. And God makes the man a steward of the earth he created, which means it's not his completely. It still belongs to God, but man is the caretaker. He's the boss on the ground making the decisions. He's entrusted with taking care of the earth and given the privilege of using it for his benefit and having dominion over it. See, when you look at the creation, what you see, uh, as we looked through Genesis 1 last week, is that you see that God's purpose and how he made the earth was so that it would be set up well for human life, for human habitation. That was his, how he created it. He organized days in a way that it would be good for us. Why? We talked about it last week. Because he loves us. He created trees and grass and fruits and vegetables so we would have shade and good things to eat and drink. And, and he created all kinds of materials and resources so we could build houses and tools and all kinds of stuff. And even in creating the animals, you know, beside the fact that someday we would start eating them, God also, he created the animals for our benefit. It says that he created the livestock. 
If you've ever been to a third world country, uh, then you know that livestock is huge. That's like a really big benefit if you've got some livestock. They can really help you out. You know, if you live in a third world country, if you have a horse, that's like having a motorcycle, man. You can go places. You can get all kinds of places. If you have a donkey, that's like having a pickup truck. If you have an ox, that's like having a tractor. If you have a cow... I guess that's like having a vending machine, you know, and, and God created all of these things for our benefit to bless us, to aid human life. And as we see our first animal, our, sorry, our first ancestors, they were gardeners and they were farmers and God, right, out of love for us, he designed creation with us in mind and then he gave it to us as a gift and he said that we could have dominion and stewardship over it. Now this charge to have dominion over creation, this is an invitation by God to go into all the world, to discover, to explore, to invent, to engineer, not to abuse creation, because we're stewards of it, but to use it. And and the message of this section here is this, that God created man in his own image. And we're going to talk about what that means next. And then he gave him dominion over the creation. So... What that means is this, plant life and human life and animal life are all valuable, but they are not all equal in value. They're not all on the same level. You know, there are people who will say that nature and uh, and animals and people are all sacred because they're all living things. Therefore, cutting down a tree or uh, killing of an animal or the killing of a person, they're all essentially the same thing. They're just as grievous. A friend of mine studied at CU and he told me that he took an ethics class, right? So on the first day of his ethics class, the teacher asked them a question. He said, if you're driving down the road in the forest and, uh, and you come around a curve and there's a baby and a squirrel in the middle of the road and you got a choice, you can, you can swerve to miss the one but you're going to have to hit the other, which one is more ethical to take down? Well, uh, obviously, the majority of the students said, well, clearly, you got to kill the squirrel. And the professor said, well, no, because all life is equally valuable and sacred, and that's the squirrel's natural habitat. He was there first, and the baby shouldn't be there. He's an intruder, so you got to take out the baby. That was his conclusion. He said that is the ethical thing to do. The Bible says, no way. Like, I think that that would be what most of us would say. Are you joking? Like, the Bible says that kind of thinking is crazy. The Bible teaches us that we should be good stewards of God's good creation, which means that we should not abuse it. We shouldn't destroy the beauty that God created out of unrestrained greed uh, that leads to poisoned rivers and extinct Uh, species. But the creation exists for our benefit at the same time. So again, this is a place where Genesis gives us a helpful perspective on God's intentions and God's design. It tells us regarding the environment, we shouldn't destroy the environment, nor should we worship the environment, but we should view creation as a gift which God has given to us to harness for maximum fruitfulness so that human life can be best served. Now let's talk about what this means in verse 26 and 27 where it says that God created man in his own image. We talked about last week how in Genesis chapter 1 we have the first allusions to the Trinity here in in these verses included. Uh, 
one God in three persons. And here God speaks. He says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is the great doctrine of imago Dei, which means the image of God. And this is really such a profound thing. It has so many levels, such a depth of meaning of this sentence, this idea that God created man in his own image. It's actually repeated throughout the Bible. It's very important in how we view humanity and human life. You know, what does it mean that God has created us in his image? What does it mean that we are image bearers of God's divine image? In what ways has he created us to resemble himself? And, and obviously that means that in what ways are we different from the rest of creation? You know, some have uh, thought about this and they've given lots of conclusions uh, I'll share some of them with you. Some have said the image and likeness of God is that we have a mind. That we're able to think rationally and logically. And I think that's true. I think that's part of the image of God. But I don't think it's the totality of what it means to be created in the image of God. Because think about this. If someone is an unborn child or if they're comatose or mentally they aren't fully functioning, they still have dignity, value, and worth. Why? Because they still bear the image of God. We don't discriminate upon IQ. We don't believe that people who are smarter are more valuable than people who are, have a lower IQ. You know, all human beings have this intrinsic value because of the fact that we are created in the image of God. We bear that divine image. Others have said the image and likeness of God is that we have language. We are able to communicate and write and speak. Again, that is part of the image of God that we can communicate but again, if you're deaf or mute, unable to communicate, you still have dignity, value, and worth. And, and that is because you are created in the image of God, because you bear his divine image. Some have said, and, and uh, Augustine, for example, said this. He said, that unlike the animals, we have an eternal soul. We're not just physical beings, but we have an eternal soul, which gives us our propensity to worship. We are uh, unique in all of God's creation, that we are worshipful beings. And we have eternity in our souls, because just as God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are a lesser trinity of, of uh, mind, body, and soul. And that's what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. And I believe that's true as well, but I think that's, that's part of it. Like I said, we've got to look at the whole picture, because I said it's many facets to this, what it means to be created in the image of God. Some people say that because God loves, therefore we can love, and that is the image of God. Some have said that God is a creative God. He is a creator who creates, and we have been made in his image, and therefore we are also creative people who create things, and I think that's absolutely right. And there are many aspects of this profound truth that God has created us in his own image. You know, being created in the image and likeness of God means that every single human being has dignity, value, and worth. Not because they're smart, not because they're rich, not because they're beautiful, not because of how much they accomplish or perform. We have a performance-driven society, but in, in, in the face of that, the Bible says, no, that's not how you get your value. You get your value because God created you in his image, 
He made you. You bear that. You reflect the image of God in this world. That distinguishes, and this is important, it distinguishes the biblical understanding of human life and sanctity of human life from all other views. And it also tells us our place in creation, right? We're not God, that's for sure. But we're not just animals, you know, as, as people like Sigmund Freud said, that he said we're just animals and we just have primal desires and we just should just go with it. No, we're not animals. We're not God. Uh, we are in between. The verse we read for our call to worship, it said he made us a little lower than the angels. That's our place in creation. Not animals. We have dominion over creation, but we're not God. That's for sure. So as human beings, we bear this image of God and we reflect the image of God. And as you know, there are times, for some of us more often than others, uh, where we do not resemble God very well. And uh, when people look at us, they're not thinking, man, that reminds me of God. You know, the image of God that we bear, it has been marred by sin. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know that, that once we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, then the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he takes up residence within us, and he begins that work of transforming us into the image of Christ. And what that is, is that he's essentially cleaning house and getting rid of the stuff that doesn't belong there and essentially restoring the divine image of God which has been marred by sin. So here in this section we read that we were created in the image of God. And notice that gender is also mentioned. God created us male and female. And what that means is that, creation, that uh, the creation of gender was a creative act of God. Men and women are different. I know that you've probably figured that out by now because you guys are sharp. And uh, you know all the differences in, in gender, this is what the Bible tells us. They're not, only, they're not cultural merely. They have actually been uh, defined by God. They're not just uh, shaped by culture and what culture dictates, but they've been defined by God. It goes all the way back to creation. That God created men and women, uh, men to be masculine and women to be feminine. And that is something that we should embrace rather than resist. Um, when I pastored in Hungary, there's a young woman from our church who got a pedagogy degree. So she was studying uh, child development and all these things. And, and she got a scholarship to spend a semester in Denmark uh, studying pedagogy and child development and doing like an internship there. And so part of her studies was this, this practical internship at a, at a kindergarten. And what she said was that at this particular place she was at, they put a big emphasis on making everything gender neutral. Right? Like the children were not even allowed to call their parents mom and dad. They had to just call them parent. Like, hey, parent, I need you to help me tie my shoe, you know? Not mom, help me, or dad, I need something to eat, but parent, please help me. So they tried to do everything they could, like to get rid of gender specificity. I think that's a word, in, uh, you know, in uh, speech and in toys and in decorations and everything. And the whole idea was to let children discover gender on their own rather than letting it be influenced by culture. Well, what happens is that they still end up as boys and girls, and the girls still play dress up, and the boys still come in and shoot them. And the, the, the fundamental thing about this, uh, this kind of thinking is that it ignores what the Bible tells us very clearly, and that is that gender is part of God's intention when he created man and woman. It's not something we need to fight against or resist, but something we need to embrace. 
um, genders a big part of the image of God. Here it's in the same, you know, couple sentences with God created them in his image and male and female he created them. God created us to reflect his image. And when you get down to it, what we need to understand about God is that biblically, God is not a man. He's not a woman either, right? He is altogether different. He is transcendent. Uh, He is the sum total of everything that's good and right, and that's why he is the source of all that is good and right. And so while the Bible does use a masculine pronoun to speak of God, it also uses feminine metaphors at times to describe God's character and to describe God's actions. He's described as a mother hen, as a mother eagle, as a human mother even. So, so where does that leave us? Is God a man? No. Is God a woman? No. Well, then what is he? He's God. He's different. He's holy. And what holy means, means a whole lot of things. But one thing that holy means is that he's altogether separate and altogether different. Another thing that holy means is that he is complete and lacking nothing. He is completely well-rounded. He is the whole package. He is missing nothing. And, And what that means is this, that our gender differences, that... In our gender differences, both men and women reflect different parts of the image of God. You know, men, we tend to reflect that part of God's nature that's strong. And, uh, and women, we, we tend to reflect that part of, or sorry, they tend to reflect that part of God's nature. We'll edit that out of the recording. So <laughs> women, they tend to edit that part of God's nature that is, uh, that is nurturing, right? That is beautiful. That part that's mysterious and intriguing. These are wonderful things. They are things which li- make life richer for everybody and they are part of the divine nature. They are aspects of who God is and what he's like. God is nurturing. He is beautiful. He is mysterious and he created women with an emphasized amount of these qualities so that they could bring glory to him by reflecting these parts of his nature. What the Bible says and, and what all of you know who have raised children or, or even been around children is that men and women are different, that gender is built into us, it's part of the design, it's not just a product of culture. And when we say that men and women are different, it's so important that we understand, based on this verse, we're not saying good or bad, better or worse. We're saying different, like right hand, left hand, like the same but different, uh, equal but different. You see, on one hand, you have, right, the chauvinists who think that women are inferior to men. And then the other extreme is the extreme feminists who say that, that women are actually superior to men. And then you have the biblical perspective based on the doctrine of imago Dei, that we've been created in the image of God here in Genesis chapter 1, which blows both the views out of the water and says, You're, you, got it, you guys fundamentally got it wrong thinking that one's better. Men and women are both image bearers of the same divine image. They both reflect God's divine image in different ways. They are equal but different. So there's no gender wars. It's just man and woman being man and woman as God created them. You know, the culture we live in tells us that you should treat women the same way that you treat men. 
Well, God's word actually says, no, you shouldn't. It says, you shouldn't treat women the same way that you treat men. You should treat them better than you treat men. You should embrace their femininity, and you should, you should treat them better than you treat men. Not only showing them dignity and respect, but you treat them with tenderness and kindness and gentleness. And one of the, I think personally, and I'll say this, is that one of the great failures of our Christian culture, and now understand this is not a failure of the Bible, not a failure of God, it is a failure of, uh, of how we have created uh, church culture, is that we've, we've done a lot to affirm women and affirm femininity, but we have failed, I believe, to, to encourage men to be masculine enough. We need to do that. I think that's important. That's something we try to do here at this church. And I hope that you see that. Is that, uh, you know, I think that it's a failure of uh, Christian culture that in regard to affirming gender, uh, particularly masculine gender, uh, you know, masculinity. Like I said, that's not God's fault. That's, that's just us. That's the failure of Christian church and the culture that we've created, how we've communicated uh, to people through our actions and attitudes. And like I said, I believe that's changing in the body of Christ as a whole. We definitely, don't, uh, we definitely want that to be the case here, that it's changing. But for a time, there, this impression was given that if you want to be a Christian man, then you've got to be kind of like a, a sissy type of guy. You know what I mean? Like you've got to dress like Mr. Rogers and be just as manly as Mr. Rogers was, you know? And a lot of guys look at that and they're like, no thanks. You know, I don't really want anything to do with that. And so it's important that we actually have a biblical view of gender, which embraces masculinity, it embraces femininity, and it affirms both of them. It tells us that men and women are equal but different. They both reflect the image of God in different ways because God created gender. And that's why in, in chapter 2, when we see the creation of Eve, right, the first woman, our first mother, what does it say about her? It says that she was a helper fit for Adam. What does that mean? It means that she complimented him and she completed him. The things that he was already good at, she complimented him. The things that he lacked, she completed him. And in all of God's creation, this is interesting. If you got your Bible, turn the page over to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, in all of God's creation, what does he say after he creates everything? He says, it's good. After he creates man, he says, it's very good. Uh, we talked last week after he created Monday. He said nothing. He was, you know, he's on the same page with us. He's not super excited about Mondays. But then the one thing, though, that he says is not good. There's only one thing. He says he creates man, and then he says what? It is not good that man would be alone. That's a huge contrast to everything he's been saying up until then. He says that it's not good that man would be alone. He doesn't have a partner who's fit for him. That's not good. So God creates woman, and he brings him to Adam, and Adam is stoked. Like, he is excited. This is like the best day of his life. He's only been around for a short time, but it's still the best day of his life, you know? Until then, he's thinking, man, what am I going to do? I don't have a lot of options here, you know, his only other choice was, only other chance was to marry one of those furry animals, and he just didn't feel right about it. And then he sees this woman, and read what he says about it, he says, wow, that's what, that's what it means in the Hebrew, actually. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, yes. He says, I tell you, and, and I just say this, he thought she was awesome, Okay. And I'll tell you what, he did not want her to, to act like a man. 
He had enough of that already. Right? He wasn't like, oh, I wish she would kind of act like a guy, you know? No, he was happy that she was a woman. He was excited about that. And in creating her, right, God is reflecting part of his image in her that Adam did not reflect as well. He, they didn't have to compete with each other. Together, man and woman, husband and wife, they completed and complemented each other. She was taken out of his side. It's kind of cliche, but I love the picture, right? Not out of his foot to be trampled upon, not out of his head to rule over him, but out of his side to be alongside him as a companion and to be treasured by him. So men, I just hope that you sincerely uh, treasure the women that God has placed in your life. Uh, They are special. They reflect a special part of the image of God in this world. So let's check out chapter 2. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The seventh day of creation, Saturday and God rests. Not because he was tuckered out from all that creating that he was just worn out, but because he was setting a precedent and a pattern for us about what a healthy attitude about work and rest looks like. So I'm going to tie that into what comes next. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens, or sorry, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." Notice in verse 4 it says, these are the generations of this and that. Right? This is a phrase that we're going to run into a lot in Genesis. Uh, before there were chapters and verses, which were only added centuries ago, uh, this was the way that the book was originally broken up into uh, generations. And that's what we're going to see as we travel through the book. But what we have here in chapter 2 is really a close-up of how the creation of man took place. Kind of like if God was a filmmaker, he started out in chapter 1 with the... Uh, you know, wide-angle lens, looking at the big picture, and now he zooms in and he brings it back a little and tells us how exactly this creation of man took place in detail. So whereas uh, until now we've been focusing on the origin of man and woman and the origin of gender, now I'm going to talk about the origin of work and the origin of rest. Let's read on from verse 18. I'm sorry, from verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it is the one that flowed from the whole land of Havalia, and where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and I can't pronounce that word, and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. 
And the, the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Okay, so regarding work, here's what's going on here. When God spoke, whereas, whereas God spoke into creation, into existence, everything until now, we see that the man and the woman were made in a different way, in a special way. God actually forms them with his hands, uh, a picture of a God who is not just distant and powerful, but who is close and intimate and tenderly involved, and, uh, and then he forms him with his hand, and then he puts his mouth on his mouth and breathes life into him. This is a very intimate picture of a God who is caring and loving and personal and, and active. So then God plants a garden in Eden. This is uh, more than being like a, the name of the garden. This is really more of a region in what we now call Mesopotamia. And he places Adam in this garden. Now we don't know exactly where this garden was. We know where the Tigris River is, where the Euphrates River is. We don't know exactly where the other two rivers are. And you know a lot of people speculate that probably the topography in the region was was changed after the flood, which happened a few hundred years after this. So you're probably not going to be able to find this place even if you try. That's just me trying to save you some money on airfare and a trip to Iraq, which is probably not something you want to do anyway. So here is what I want to point out to you about work. Uh, Work is, in the Bible, work is not a bad thing. Work is a good thing. Uh, God works. God plants a garden. That's work. He places Adam in the garden. Later on in verses 19 and 20, we see that God gives Adam a job. Not only was he to be a gardener who took care of things, but he was to give names to the different animals and keep track of them. He's the first zoologist. So if anyone in here ever talks about the, the, the world's oldest profession, now you know what it is. It's zoology. So here's the thing. In ancient culture, uh, work was considered a curse. Okay? If you may have heard the story of Pandora's box. Greek mythology says that Pandora was the first woman on earth, and she was given this box by the gods as kind of a trick. And it contained all the evils of the world, and she was told not to open it under any circumstance, because they knew that if they told her not to do that, that's exactly what she would do. And she was curious, and she opened up, Pandora's box and by doing so she released all the evils and curses into the world and they could never be put back in and one of the evils that was contained in Pandora's box was work and what that means is that according to Greek mythology work is a curse and according to other ancient mythology for example eastern ancient eastern mythology it said that the gods created the humans because the gods didn't want to work so they created the humans to do the work for them so they could relax and again the idea is that work is bad that it's evil that it's a curse the bible on the other hand presents or presents a very different picture of work it tells us that work is something good uh, work is part of being created in the image of god Here, the very first picture of God in the Bible is he's doing work. That's chapter 1. He's creating, he's forming, he's at work. He plants a garden, that's work. He places the man in the garden and then gives him a job. So take note of this. Work is part of life in paradise before sin enters the world. Before the fall of man into sin, before the curse of sin, work exists in paradise. Another thing that's true of ancient cultures, which 
might even be true of our culture today is that ancient cultures did not value all work of being of the same level of dignity, right? The Greeks said that if you had to work, you should try to do, uh, you know, mental work. Uh, uh, So you should avoid manual labor. You should avoid physical labor because it gets you dirty. In the face of this attitude, what do we see here in Genesis chapter 2? The almighty God, the almighty transcendent God who is able to speak things into existence if he wants to, what does he do? He gets on his hands and knees. He scoops dirt with his hands. He's got dirt under his fingernails. He's forming man. And this God, and, and in doing this, right, God, what is he doing? He's affirming the value and dignity of work. Not, not just intellectual work, but all work. And, and, uh, and that's why if you look through the Bible, you see that the idea of, of being you know, diligent is uplifted, but there's no patience for the lazy person who could work, but chooses not to. Here in Genesis, we get the balanced biblical perspective and attitude on work. Work is good, but rest is also good. So it's not good to be lazy, but neither is it good to overwork. So work is bad if it's not balanced. Here in Genesis chapter 2, God gives a precedent for working hard and then resting. Maybe you say, but I'm not tired. I'm young. I don't need to rest. I can push myself. Well, God wasn't tired either. He's God. He wasn't tired. But he rested from his labors and he enjoyed, he took time to enjoy that which he had labored for. That's what the Bible tells us, that a precedent, not just to work all the time, but to work some, work hard, but then rest and enjoy the life that you've worked for. You know, some people work really hard to have nice things, but they don't take time to enjoy those things. Uh, Some people work really hard to give their family a comfortable life, but they never stop working to enjoy time with their family. God made us to be people who labor and produce, But we will kill ourselves, we kill our happiness, and we'll kill our families if we don't learn to take a day off and rest. God loves us so much that he built a day off into creation. We have a seven-day week because God established a seven-day week here in Genesis. And we have a day off because God established a day off. God made us to work and to rest. And when we do both well, then he's glorified. You know, one of the... One of the things that uh, leads to overwork is the sense that our accomplishments define who we are. And some people can't stop working because of that sense that they need to prove something by their accomplishments. But think about how gloriously freeing the truth of the Bible is in this case. It tells you, you do not need to prove yourself. You do not need to prove your worth because your significance and your value is because you are created in his image. Because you bear his image and you reflect his image in the world. And he gave you talents that you can use to produce and contribute. And in doing so, you bring glory to him. Some people say, I don't like God telling me what to do. Well, here's God telling you to take a nap. Maybe you should say, maybe you should just say thank you and be like, okay, I'll be an obedient child, you know. Some people have this view that when God tells you to do something, it's because he's being restrictive and therefore it's bad and we should be defiant. And we should say, no way, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be free. But the truth is this, that when God tells us to do something, it's good. It's because he loves us and he knows what we need even if we don't think we need it. I have a daughter who's two 
And that's like the very definition of her life. It's like me telling her to do stuff that I know she needs and her thinking, no, I don't want to do that, you know? And I say, take a nap. It's not because I'm an overlord who likes to rule over her with an iron fist. It's because I know what it's like if she doesn't take a nap. And I just want to save all of us and let us all be happier, including her. You know, she's convinced she doesn't need a nap. I'm her father. I've been around a little bit longer. I know a little bit more than she does. That's why I give her instructions. And it's important that we see God that way. That he's, he's not an overlord. He is a loving father. He's not a tyrant. He's a good, loving father. And believe it or not, he knows more about things than we do. So we should be obedient children. And when he says, take a nap, sometimes we need to go take a nap. Okay? Uh, you know, I think the two people who have the hardest time resting from their labors are those who are self-employed because they're driven and those who are moms. And not because they're driven, but because their kids wake up every day and they never take a day off. And they always want to eat something. And uh, every day, they don't let you take a nap. And if you don't have family nearby, then that makes it even harder. So if you're a dad or you're a person who just kind, I guess, you can really bless someone who, you can really bless a mom by giving her time to take a, a Sabbath rest because moms need a Sabbath rest too. So, uh, so really, take the kids out for a while. Give mom a break. She needs to relax and have her own time a little bit too. But let me just finish with saying this. We do not only need rest from our physical work. We also need rest for our souls. And the Sabbath is not just about resting physically. The Sabbath points to Jesus. That's what we learn in the New Testament. It speaks of the rest that we need for our souls that can only be found in him. Like I said, the Greeks believed that any great man would only be a philosopher or a teacher, certainly not a manual laborer. The Jews expected the Messiah to come as a military commander, but certainly not as a common laborer. And how did God send his son? As a carpenter, as a trade worker, as a union guy who had calloused hands, and God himself got his hands dirty when he made us. In creation, after he had created man, when we see God the Father, when he, he's done with his work, what does he say? He says it's finished and he rested from his labors. And check this out. In the redemption, after he had suffered for us on the cross of Calvary, we see the Son of God coming. And what does he say? He says it is finished so that we can rest from our labors. In the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4, right, the author is explaining that the Sabbath day was, was more than just a physical rest. It was also a foreshadowing of the true rest of the soul, which can only be found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he says this, he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. You and I need that Sabbath rest. We, we have a good and loving God who tells us you need the Sabbath rest. You need to rest physically. You need to have a rhythm of hard work and then rest. And you need to rest spiritually. Rest from your soul, which can only come from the knowledge that you have been made righteous in Christ. Not by your own works, but by his grace. 
You know, the knowledge that in Christ your sins have been taken away and you have been reconciled to God and that the Holy Spirit is working in your life, restoring the image of God in which you were created and that you have the promise of eternal life that will give you true rest for your soul. That's how you experience the Sabbath in your soul, in Christ, by believing on and experiencing the power of the gospel. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news, Lord. We thank you that you created us for perfection, Lord, and that we have this lingering memory of it in our, in our souls, Lord, because you're going to bring us back to that place. Lord, thank you for that hope that we have in you. Lord, that you will make all things new. Lord, that you will restore the good intentions with which you created the world. Lord, thank you that you created us with dignity, value, and worth. And I pray that for all of us, Lord, you'd help us to find our identity in you, who we are in Christ, who we are in the eyes of our loving Father who made us uh, because he loved us. Lord, who created this good creation for us because he loved us. Lord, thank you that you still love us. And thank you that the greatest manifestation of your love was when you sent your son to die for us. And thank you for the hope and the joy that we have in him. We just celebrate that today in Jesus' name.